certainly uh, let this be the beginning of us praying for those families on the West Coast. Uh, I would really encourage you to take some time this week just to continue to lift them up in that same vein. Now, <clears throat> today we're back in our uh, series in Nehemiah, and as is promised, we're really kind of at the tail end of it now. Uh, next week will likely be the last week. Um, I'm kind of in my mind debating whether to go one more week, but uh, the short story is we're pretty much at the end of the good things that God has done in the people of God in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah. And today we're continuing this little series within a series on what it looks like to live a life of genuine worship. And <clears throat> you've given me the freedom to take a little hiatus with you this morning, or for these past couple of weeks, out of Nehemiah 12. We started about four weeks ago looking at this, uh, this amazing worship service that takes place. It's the culmination of everything God has done in the lives of his people, and to give thanks for that, uh, they get together and they just have a super awesome, massive worship service. Uh, to give thanks and to remember who God is and what he's done. Kind of similar to what we'll do next weekend. We mark out that weekend to take some time to give thanks for who God is and what he's done in our lives. And, and out of that Nehemiah 12 example, we, we were able to jump into some teachings in the New Testament. So Nehemiah 12 is really where the series began, series within a series, but, but it's really rooted what we're talking about today in this conversation that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And it's there where we get this very important truth where Jesus is giving us a clear definition of what genuine Christian worship looks like in the life of a Christian. And he says that it's, there are two kind of inseparable elements that validate Christian worship. Without them, or with just one of them, or with none of them, we really begin to embrace forms of worship that are, that are questionable. And he told us two things that we just read in John 4. The first is that genuine Christian worship must be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you want to worship Jesus and God, who is Spirit, then you must worship Him in Spirit. So we can't worship God without God is a good way to say that. And the second thing that Jesus tells us is that we can't worship God without the objective clarity of, of his truth. Because if we try to worship God in spirit without truth or truth without spirit, we wind up getting false forms of worship. And what this really does for us, really what it kind of refines in the life of, of uh, worship for a Christian, is it says that God has a, a very certain way that he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped for who he is not for who sometimes people make him out to be. And that's a very real issue in our culture today. We talked a little bit about that last week. So to worship God, we've got to worship him on his own terms. And this, the particular incident we saw in John chapter 4 was the Samaritan woman thought that her worship was validated by a certain place. And in New Testament terms, we might say that we think our worship is validated when we do it in this room. And it certainly can be, but it cannot be restricted to this room alone. And this is the segue that Jesus uses to unpack what I think is the greatest teaching in the whole New Testament about worship. He lets her know that worship cannot be refined to a mountain or a particular moment in time because it's a, it's a lifestyle. Worship is a, is a culture, if you will, that we're supposed to be living, sleeping, eating, and breathing. In everything we say and in everything we do, the core of our being, we should be honoring God and bringing our worship before him. And the reason we know this is true is because of this, the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 4. It comes from a Greek word called proskuneo, and the general idea behind this is that you, you are giving uh, value, prescribing great value to something that you really deem as greater than yourself. And from that, we derive the very practical definition. I've shared it each week, and I'm going to share it with you again this morning, because it is the springboard for what we're going to look at today. From, from that teaching that Jesus gives us in John 4, in that particular word, we put together a functional definition of worship. It'll be behind me, so meditate on it with me for a moment, if you will. Worship is the act of bowing down in adoration before God because you genuinely see him as greater than yourself. It is a posture of the heart that compels you to give your ultimate love and affection to God by living your life in light of his truth because he is worthy of it. And so you can see that 
worship, if we're doing it like this in this room, is valid, right? But it can't just happen in this room. And that's what we're going to dial in on in these last weeks of the series. We're looking at this, these ideas of what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. And today we're adding another teaching from Paul, Galatians 5, 22 through 25. You read your Bible, these will likely be familiar verses to you. They are, they are really some of the most famous in the whole New Testament. They give us a clear understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and, and what his work in our life is. And that's why talking about this text uh, in connection to the one we looked at last week is important. Because we don't get the whole bag, if you will, of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives in one single set of teachings. In fact, you've noticed here that we're looking at four different teachings. We're looking at how God's Spirit works in the Old Testament. We're looking at how Jesus talks about the Spirit in the New Testament. And then how Paul, as he's planting churches around the world, is teaching the people at Ephesus and today the people in Galatia about the work of the Holy Spirit. Central theme in the Bible. And we're going to try to connect them a little bit at the end of this series. Because the truth is, is that the greatest thing we see in Nehemiah is that at this point, they are a people who are genuinely worshiping God with all they are. They are pleasing God in amazing ways. But when we get into chapter 13, some of that enthusiasm fades away. And so there's, a, there's a, both a beautiful kind of reminder and a steep warning in this, that we can be at a great place with God today, but not necessarily tomorrow. And so these are kind of some warning teachings, if you will, that help us to figure out how we can keep in step with Jesus Christ and what he calls us to be. How we can make sure that we're always moving towards our what is and what God wants for our lives. So today we're going to talk about what it means to, to keep in step with, with God's Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not an abstract thing. It's actually Jesus' Spirit. He leaves His Spirit with us when He ascends into heaven. That's what happens in the Gospels. And so let's jump right in and look at this first truth that we see in this passage about maintaining a life of worship. And according to Galatians, if you want to worship Jesus in truth, remember, this is imperative. You don't just worship Jesus. To worship God properly, you have to worship Him according to His truth. This is what keeps us kind of rooted in God, the God of Scripture, not the God that is often made up to be a God that doesn't exist in the lives of people. So if you want to worship the real Jesus in truth, then you must learn to live by and keep in step with his Holy Spirit. And I want to reread these verses. We don't have a lot today, but they're important, so I want to refresh our minds. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. We're actually going to look at these kind of in, in two sections. Paul says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Remember, last week he said, Don't get drunk on wine. He said, Yet be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So again, he's given us a little bit of another analogy. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are marks, evidences, if you will, that Jesus is real and alive in your life when we begin to embrace this kind of living. Against such things, he says, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And then, the point of what we're talking about today, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, last week we talked about some of the, the abuses of the Holy Spirit we see in culture. Today we have another, another teaching that can potentially be abused. So because of that, we're going to dial right into what, what Scripture is teaching us here. And in Scripture, living by the Spirit has a very particular meaning. There might be multiple expressions of it in our world today, but there's a pointed kind of way that the Bible talks about what living, living in the power of the Spirit looks like. And it's connected to what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about God's love for us. We just sang about this. It's so deep. It's so powerful. It's so real for us that he has promised to saturate our lives with his grace. That's what he said he would do. He would essentially make our souls drunk for him, right? To the point where we are now being controlled. We are now living, breathing, and thinking the thoughts and the ideas of Jesus. And he said that he would do that by constantly reminding us of the gospel promises that he has made to us in Jesus. And we learned the way that he does that 
the importance of the Holy Spirit is that he gives us his eternal presence. He doesn't just give us a book to read. He gives us his presence through the book. As we're, as we're reading through the book, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And his main job is to remind us of who Jesus is in all areas of life, and we forget. And Ephesians taught us that God's Holy Spirit is it's like a spiritual spotlight. Think of the light in this room today, right? It's, it's pointed at certain things, and it's lighting up certain things that we're trying to bring uh, emphasis to. This is the way the Holy Spirit works. He is always trying to remind us of the joy and the hope that we have in Jesus. Even in our prayer this morning, we're trying to bring people's minds and hearts back to the joy and the hope of Jesus. We're not minimizing the reality of pain and suffering, but we have to follow Jesus. We have to get back to Jesus' truth at some point if we want to persevere in the world. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He is reminding us of who Jesus is, his hope, his joy, and he is simultaneously burdening us to help others know about that hope and that joy. So he brings our hearts' attention to Jesus, and then at times he compels our hearts to bring other people's hearts to Jesus. In other words, we are sharing the gospel. We're, we're now becoming, if you will, many spotlights for Christ. Today we get another critical detail about the, how the Holy Spirit does this, how he points our hearts back to Jesus. And we learn that the way the Holy Spirit keeps us in step with the Spirit of Jesus, points the spotlight back to him, is by helping us to, to keep in step with the life and the teachings of Jesus. Who Jesus is, God, that's what God wants us to be, who he wants us to be. And the Holy Spirit helps us to bridge that gap. And here's why knowing this is important. We said a lot in this room, and I want to say it again, that the, the, the true source and strength of the Christian life, it cannot be fabricated or manufactured by us. It, it's not the kind of thing you can just do on your own. Yes, you, like what Paul says, you might be able to embrace some, some forms of godliness. You might be a, a patient person, or you might be a generous person. We can certainly do the things that honor God, but we know time and time again that we can actually do those things without really loving God. And so the, the, the glue that the Holy Spirit connects us to, he, he's a binding agent, if you will, that helps us to understand that, it gives us motivation for why we're doing what we're doing. It's giving us a reason for why we're doing what we're doing. We can't fabricate this or manufacture this. If you've ever been in a hard place in life, you know this. You can't just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps all the time. Sometimes the pain and the grief and the suffering and the reality of your life situation requires something outside of you. You need encouragement from people. You need love from people. You need care from people. You need a shoulder to cry on. And in that same vein of support and help, God says, yes, you need all that, but you also have me. You have the power of my Holy Spirit. This is what it means to worship Jesus, to worship him in spirit and truth. It's in everything we say and do and how we handle every situation, he's there. And we said that the main goal of our worship, it's, it's to become more like Jesus. And we saw this particularly in the verses that we read in Romans last week. Paraphrasing them, the natural result of a person who worships God, like we're talking about today, in spirit and in truth, who keeps in step with the spirit of Jesus, it means they truly understand what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And that's a word we use a lot here too. They're at this place in their life where they're, they want to be many Jesuses. They want to live like Jesus and function like Jesus. They want to make decisions for Jesus. They want to honor him in everything they say and do with our families and our vocations, with our friends, whatever opportunities that God presents to us. In other words, they truly desire to bring every area of their life under the lordship of Jesus. This doesn't mean that we do this now or in a week. It means that this, this is a lifelong process. We are spending our days learning to become more like Christ, genuinely. And so living in the Spirit, while it can have many different connotations in our world today, the simple definition is that to live in the Spirit means you're living like Jesus. To live in the Spirit means you're living like Jesus. And that's why Paul says, those who belong to Jesus live by His Spirit. They are committed to using our discipleship analogies, they are committed to pursuing the truth of Jesus, right? The Jesus of the Bible in a Christ-honoring church family. We don't do this alone. We do this with support. 
to be equipped for the mission of God. Those are the three marks of, of a disciple. And a true disciple is worshiping God with all that they are. This is the foundation of what Paul teaches us. And it's the foundation for the second half of verse 25. The command to keep in step with the Spirit, we have to know, is in order to be able to accomplish that, we have to actually live in the power of the Spirit, as we talked about last week and this week. And so theologically speaking, here's what this means. If the Holy Spirit keeps and empowers us, right? That's what we read here. That's what we read last week. We know that when we talk about mission and how we help other people find Christ, Jesus gave us the power of his Spirit. The, the Spirit is central to all of these things, central to the Christian life. So if the Holy Spirit keeps and empowers us to live the Christian life, then it makes perfect sense that a true worshiper or disciple would be passionate about letting the Holy Spirit direct their steps in life. In other words, here's, here's the real nut that we're trying to crack this morning. Those who claim to follow Jesus should actually want to live like Jesus. They should want to live their lives in such a way that they are actually following Jesus. That's the idea that we're talking about here. And this idea, although we're not going to unpack the fruit of the Spirit today, that would be like 15 different sermons, I want to get to the general gist of this. What Paul is talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the evidence that we're keeping in step with the Spirit. So think of it like this. In the same way, when you go to a doctor, your pulse is taken, and it shows you're, you're physically alive, right? They're, they're reading vital signs to try to figure out where you are in, in life. Like, are you doing well? Are you not doing well? There's a spiritual analogy here. For the disciple, the fruit of becoming more like Jesus... Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is really the evidence that you're alive in Jesus. The way we can take our pulse, the way you can take your own pulse it, to see if you're spiritually alive is to look at this. And so anytime we teach on the fruit of the Spirit, we've done it a few times here, there are two big things that I point out. First, today, we are not going to look at each individual element. We don't just have time for that. Uh, so I want to give that disclaimer. The second thing I want to point out, though, is something that's super important. Uh, it's a linguistic issue. And so when we look at the word fruit here, most people talk about fruits of the Spirit. This is kind of a, a common vernacular in our culture today amongst Christians. But it's important to know that, that fruits is actually not what Paul is saying here. The word fruit is a single word. And the, the removal of that S means something very, very different for us. So for example, we know we, when we study the Gospel of John, we talked about how the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, right? Every single person has, has an ability that God has given them to use for his kingdom. For some people, it's music, it's administration, it might be teaching, it might be encouragement, it might be mercy. Those gifts lists, they're varied, right? And the Holy Spirit, according to God's will and how he wants to work in the world, he gives these different gifts, right? We see the Holy Spirit giving out a diversity of things to people, working with us in very unique ways, and that's amazing. But here, fruit is not like the gifts. Fruit, what Paul, Paul is not saying here, like some people get to be gentle and some people get to be self-controlled and some people get to be uh, these, these individual descriptions. Fruit is not like this. He's talking about one single fruit that the Holy Spirit gives us to make us more like Jesus for the sake of his mission. So, so here, we're not talking about a bag of different gifts. I always use the analogy of, the, of a prism in the Holy Spirit or, or a precious jewel. Here, when we talk about fruit, what, what Paul is telling us is that you all get this one jewel. Every single one of us in Jesus gets this jewel, and these are the multifaceted sides of it. So what we're reading about here today, we don't have the option of not being these things. To be in Jesus means he's already hardwired us for these things, and we have to press into them. We have to learn to, to deepen our love for them. So in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, simply put, is life change. And this, this verse here is one of the clearest in the Bible that talks about the precious jewel of what life change looks like. It's the concrete evidence that God is making us more like Jesus. 
And when we become like Jesus, when we start to become like him anyways, and everything we say and do, that is the evidence that we're worshiping God with our whole life. That's the reality that, that God's promises are being fulfilled in our lives. And here's the thing, that greatly pleases God. If you want to know what makes God happy, it's when we live like Jesus. He loves that. That's why he gave us Christ. Now, um, I want to share with you a, uh, a quote from my, one of my favorite theologians. We've shared him, uh, I've shared some teachings with you in here before from him, and I want to give you another one. It's from a, a guy named uh, Little Wayne. You guys remember him? He's uh, an incredible theologian. Uh, I've cast my life in his image, and he talked about the Holy Spirit one time in jail. And uh, I want to read this to you. He came to this conclusion, no joke, while reading the Bible in prison uh, for a weapons charge. Okay? So he said this. Uh, they gave him a Bible, and he started reading it. He said, I like the parts where some character was once this, but he ended up being that. Like he'd be dissing Jesus, and then he ends up being a saint. That was pretty cool. All right? So right there, like little, little Wayne breaks up the Bible, and he sees like, I think this is amazing. This guy was like this, and then he's like that. And the point I'm trying to make here is that if Lil Wayne, in, a, in a, a cursory reading of the Holy Spirit in, in jail for a weapons charge, can figure out the theology of the Holy Spirit, we have no excuse to not figure this out. Like, what, what is our excuse to not know this, right? This is an important thing. We have no excuse. To, the Scripture is so clear in the work of the Spirit that if we follow the truth to Jesus, we're going to start looking like Jesus. And this leads me to the second thing I want to share with you this morning as we talk about the work of the Spirit in our lives. If you want to keep in step with the Spirit... And this should be the desire of every believer. You must let him cross-examine every area of your life. We've got to let the Holy Spirit investigate us. We've got to get to the place where we're not resistant to that. Because when we say we want to follow Jesus, but we don't, we don't utilize or rely on the tools, in this case the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has given us to follow him properly, we start to get the paradigm out of balance. And there's this kind of little verse sandwiched in this teaching in Galatians that shows us this. Paul says, like, hey, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, if you think of the sandwich, like the two pieces of bread are, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And every single person is called to live in step with this, right? And in the middle of that, he says, but because those who belong to Jesus, well, they've crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And so we know right away that the theology of the cross teaches us that neither you or I can, can crucify the sinful nature. We can fight it and combat it, but the truth is that our sinful nature once and for all was dealt with by the power and the grace of Jesus. And so in the middle of these two action steps, we're given this stark reminder of, of what looking like Jesus actually is. It's laying down sin and moving towards Christ. This is why we brought up this point last week about the main, the main job, if you will, of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to Jesus' truth in all areas of life. And so now we've got both Jesus and Paul giving us pretty clear descriptions of this. They tell us things like he comes alongside us in life. He reminds us of Jesus' promises and his truths when our hearts forget them. He prompts us uh, towards holiness, right? And by holiness, we're not talking about holier than now. We're talking about what it means to be set apart for the service, consecrated to God. What it means to, for all of our days to live more like Christ in our lives. That's what holiness is. He helps to keep us from sinning against God. He's an eternal check at times. He helps to keep us from sinning against other people. And if I may be so blunt, sometimes he even keeps us from sinning against ourselves because we know that that's very possible. We can do things that hurt ourselves. This is a great grace from God. When you think about this gift that he's given us, this Holy Spirit, it's amazing because he's basically saying this is not necessarily going to be an easy life. I recognize that following me is not going to be easy. So I'm going to give you me to follow me with. And the reason why this is such a great grace is because it's pretty much near impossible for genuine worship and persistent sin to exist alongside each other. Over time, one hard attitude is going to dominate the other. 
And so in Scripture, there are many descriptions of how the Holy Spirit works to lead us to Jesus' truth. He is like a prism or a, the multifaceted sides of, of a precious jewel. He tell, uh, the Scripture teaches us that he, He's our encourager, He is our helper, He is our advocate. There's a lot of legal language that talks about the Holy Spirit, and all these things talk about Him coming alongside us and helping us to become who God wants us to be. And so today, based on Paul's writings and some other teachings from Jesus, I want to I layer another, uh, another truth on top of what we've already talked about as far as what it means to live a lifestyle of worship. Um, in John 16, this is Jesus kind of throughout the Gospel of John revealing who the Holy Spirit is. He's, he's with more clarity beginning to teach about the purpose of the Holy Spirit because when he goes, he's going to leave him with us, right? In John 16, 8, uh, the whole, Jesus tells us in addition to these things we've just talked about, that the Holy Spirit works to constantly prove or convict people of, he uses these two words, sin and their righteousness. Proving and convicting. In other words, he is constantly in our lives, shepherding our hearts, helping us to distinguish the differences between sin and righteousness. And honestly, I think what Jesus more means here is self-righteousness. And this is interesting because Paul in Galatians 2.24 and Jesus in John 16 both teach us that the way the Holy Spirit helps to keep us in step with Jesus is by giving him the authority to, we might almost consider him to have the same kind of MO as a prosecuting attorney. The idea is that in the courtroom of life, the Holy Spirit is regularly cross-examining our hearts to, to prove or to convict, that has a negative connotation in culture, I hope to diffuse that in a minute, to convict them of the reality of their spiritual condition. He's constantly pointing out things in our lives and in our hearts to show us where we really are. He's an objective clarity to give us an absolute clarity on where we are or are not with God or other people in our lives. And to show them their need for Jesus. This is what he's doing. He shows us our need for Jesus. He reminds us of his promises. And at times, he helps to realign our lives, our steps, if you will, when they are out of step with Jesus. Now, I'll give you a, a physical example of this. I confessed to you guys two years ago that, uh, that Orzo men die very young because of heart issues. This is a, a problem in our family. I don't know what it is. Uh, I guess it's hereditary or something. And for my dad and other people, he's still alive, but uh, they drink like gallons of olive oil and fried stuff like Coca-Cola. So part of the problem with, I think, the hereditary issues in our family is the way that people eat. They just eat like old school Italians. But, but nonetheless, I knew this was in our family. And so at, at, in my younger 30s, I actually started seeing a doctor about this because it was kind of a pre-existing condition in my family. And sure enough, at 31, um, I already had the indications of, of high cholesterol. This was my doctor in New Orleans. And so I started seeing him on a regular basis, and he started speaking, kind of medically speaking, into my life about what needed to happen. And so we have a very long history of this, and he really took note of it, and so has every doctor since. So in my family, men, they take Lipitor uh, like you guys would probably eat Skittles, like they're on coffee tables for dessert, because everybody has these, these heart issues. And so if you've been to the doctor before, especially in America, you know there's kind of a certain rhythm that the American embraces when we go to the doctor. We, we sometimes, at least in the Orzo family, there's an issue that's been put off for a very long time because nobody likes doctors. So they get to the place where they know they have to see one. They go to the physician for this particular issue. They're concerned the chest hurts or whatever, in this case cholesterol. The doctor begins to examine you by running some tests on you, and he begins to identify the potential problems. In other words, the, the, the medicinal court of law, if you will, is probably the greatest example we have of the kind of advocacy that the Holy Spirit uh, embarks upon in our lives. Your doctor, based on his knowledge of your body, is trying to prove or convince you that you need to make certain changes uh, for the benefit of your physical health. 
And so in, in my family, uh, the first response to a doctor is typically to not listen. That's what most people do. Um, <clears throat> my dad doesn't use the internet, but I do. And so I would say things like, you know what, I don't trust this guy because I know what that WebMD says about cholesterol. And that's like pretty much as good as a science degree, right? So you get to this place where you, you're, you're hearing this, but maybe you're not listening to it or you're hearing it and you might be afraid. Yeah, I know you might have a young death because your heart is bad uh, and, and you don't act. But your doctor, because he cares for you, he keeps trying to prove his case. Every year he runs your blood and you come back to him and he says, hey, this is, cre this is creeping up. And now it's going to be a real problem. And whatever your issue is, this is a good way to kind of frame this. Over time, your doctor begins to chronicle what you're dealing with in life. And he or she begins to insert corrective measures to help you live up to your, your full human potential. This is what a good doctor does. They care about the person, so they want to see the person live. And they begin to examine your life. They're bringing to light, we might almost use the language here, the convicting facts of your situation. And they're doing this not to shame you or to guilt you or to make you feel bad, but because they, they want you to live up to your full potential. You're seeing the doctor to have a healthy life, and your doctor's trying to help you have a healthy life. So in a similar way, this is how the Holy Spirit works in the spiritual lives of those who don't believe. He's working in their lives. Many of us who are believing here today have a line of demarcation. There are seasons in our life where we look back and we did not believe in Christ, or we had doubts, or maybe we had a nominal faith, whatever. To move forward towards Jesus, to take next steps with him requires the power of the Holy Spirit. He is constantly showing us who we need to be, Jesus' truth, so that we'll choose the abundant life in Christ. That's what John, uh, John teaches us, John 10, right? We don't just live in Jesus, we live abundantly in Jesus. And the way we live abundantly in Jesus, healthy, none of us just want to exist, right? We want to thrive in life. The way we thrive spiritually is by becoming like Christ. And so it's important when, when we think of these words that scripture uses, conviction and proving these can be negative words in our, in our vocabularies but think about the way your doctor treats you this is the way that the holy spirit works he does not use shame or guilt to keep you in step with jesus he does not manipulate your life remind you of how poor you are in areas to keep you down he is trying to lead you to a better life in christ he is leading your heart to follow the truth of jesus and this is important and there are evidences of this this isn't just some theoretical idea. There are lots of, of scriptural teachings and evidences in, in the Bible of people's lives who had the Holy Spirit work in them. And I'm not going to necessarily give you particular examples today in the Bible, but I do want to give you three kind of big ideas, if you will, that can help you to figure out whether or not you are being examined by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a promise. So if some of these things or none of these things are happening in life, then we have to ask the question, why not? Because God has already promised he's going to work in us like this. There are three I want to share with you this morning. The first is, you'll know you're being cross-examined by the Holy Spirit when you start to feel convicted uh, for the sin of your unbelief. And that's what I love about this, is that uh, um, the way the Holy Spirit works knows no boundaries, which is why worship can know no boundaries. He works both in the unbeliever, and then he works in the believer who has moments of unbelief. Now let me explain what I mean by this. In our modern culture, right, lots of people have a, uh, when we talk about unbelief in general, they have a misinformed understanding of, of what sin is. Some don't believe that it exists at all. Others simply see it as bad behaviors. And while sin can certainly be all of that and is all of that, it is much, much more than just that. Sin is kind of a compound break. If you think about a stable and healthy relationship, it's a complete break, a compound break between the relationship that we had with, with God. And we've already established about a month ago that at the root of every sin is the issue of unbelief. And we talked about this from, from idol worship. 
So every single thing, it doesn't matter what we're doing, if it's out of step with God, we can just about guarantee that we can trace it back to an issue of improper worship in the depth of the heart. Because worship, remember, in our world, is much, much more than just what we sing on Sunday. It's the root of all unbelief is when we stop believing God is the only person that can satisfy our needs in life. And when we stop believing that, we inevitably turn to other things, hoping that they'll help us fill these God-shaped holes in our heart. We talked about success, a very particular example. Some of us might turn to stuff. Some of us might turn to relationships. Whatever it is we feel like we can't get from God, we just start to find it in, in other things. And if that starts to happen, and there are likely seasons in all of our lives when it does, the promise of the Holy Spirit is that He's going to work in our hearts to prove why those idols cannot give us what only Jesus can. It's like the equivalent of Him pointing out a spiritual cholesterol issue. He's beginning to remind us, yeah, uh, stuff, that stuff can be really great, but stuff is not guaranteed in life. Or success, as we talked about, you might get it this month and lose it the next. All of these things are shifty. So He proves to us our, our issues of unbelief, whether that's finding Jesus or in those moments when we are pursuing Jesus, that we stop believing. Let's be frank. We all have those moments where we're like, really? Is he real? Is he around? Do I really believe this? Why do I not feel this? All those things go in our minds. And when that's happening, you have to know you're not alone in this. The Holy Spirit sympathizes with that. And he's in your life working to help you answer those questions. He is alive. And he is still here. And there is still goodness when you can't see it or experience it. And here's what this feels like. Because it is kind of an emotive thing if the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It's when the once seemingly random ways that God was speaking to you about stuff in general, it starts to get very specific. Maybe you're uh, reading Bible verses. Maybe something like this. You've read this a hundred times. But today, it's saying something to you that it's never said before. That's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is, is beginning to help you believe in things you did not once know. He's getting specific in areas. It's when you come to the conclusion that you have pursued idols. And they have been very shiny from a distance. But when you got right up on them, you recognize that they were not shiny enough. They were kind of very deceiving, rusty and unfulfilling. Upon closer exa examination, you realize they couldn't, they couldn't fulfill. They, they, they deceived you. It's deep down in your heart when you start to care about things that you never cared about before. And the two biggest areas, at least in my experience, are always in the spiritual and, and the moral. You start caring about people that don't have stuff. You have a burden for the poor or for your workplace neighbor. You see them suffering and hurting. And maybe five years ago, you wouldn't have thought twice about intervening. But now something is happening in you where you start to care about people. This is the evidence of you becoming more like Christ. Or spiritually speaking, you know, all the things you used to say to keep you away from loving God, all the controversial and the abrasive claims of the Christian faith that, that were really controversial. You just said, I can never get my head wrapped around this stuff. Over time, they become less controversial and a little less abrasive because you start trusting God a little more by doubting your doubts a, a little less. These are some of the signs that the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that he's, he's examining your heart for the sin of unbelief. And please know that unbelief plagues both the Christian and the non-Christian. We can love Jesus with all of our heart and still not believe certain things about it. We might, we might believe that Jesus says he's the God of hope, but we don't have hope in our life. That's an issue of unbelief. We've got to get to the root of why that's happening. And if this stuff is happening, it means God is speaking to you. But I want to give you a warning with the way God speaks. When the Holy Spirit cross-examines your life in any way, it can really be uncomfortable at times. Because what is likely happening is he's, he's not just addressing something you're doing or something you're not believing. He's beginning to get to the core of that. Remember, the Holy Spirit's not concerned with the external. He starts with the internal. He starts with the motive of the heart. And it can be very uncomfortable when you realize that maybe your, your lack of hope in Jesus is because you have a deep-seated problem with trust in your life. 
See, that's where the Holy Spirit wants to start. And that's where he is going to start. He's going to begin unraveling what is very likely a belief system you might have held to for a very long time. He's going to attack the core of what could be an idol. So if this is happening to you, you, you I would encourage you not to resist. This is the mark of a God who loves you. It's the mark of a God who is calling you back to him. It's the mark of a God who is putting a spotlight on something. And his spotlight is moving the eyes of your heart back to the truth of Jesus. He cares about you enough to not just hope it works out in life. He cares about you enough to be with you every step of the way to ensure that it works out in life. So he cross-examines our heart for the sin of unbelief. The second thing that he does is he, uh, you'll know you're being cross-examined by the Holy Spirit when you start to feel convicted of the sin of your righteousness. And we're going to revisit a very common text in the Gospel of Luke uh, that really shows us that this word righteousness, we almost always understand it as something good in the Christian faith. But it can actually be a real, a real problem. It can actually be a sinful behavior. And here's how. When we look at the core of the Gospel, when we begin to understand that to truly find Jesus, it means that we have to repent of, of what we're not. We have to repent of sin. We get, get to this place where we say, I know my idols and I want to trade them in to follow Christ. It does teach us that, but it also teaches us that to, to truly know Jesus, um, some of us are going to have to repent of our perceived righteousness. Two kinds of people come to God. Those that think God loves them because of who they are, and, and those that say, like, I don't ever think God, God can love me because of who I am. And both of those issues are fundamentally flawed. They have to be corrected so that we understand God loves us because of, of who Jesus is. So both, you know, our, our sin and our righteousness can keep us from knowing God fully. And the sad truth when it comes to this issue, righteousness, is that there are lots of people, both in Scripture, and we probably know some, and maybe we've even been this person, who use who they are. They use their deeds, their righteousness, which is really a self-righteousness. They, they live a certain way, not so that they can honor God with their lifestyle of worship, but so that they can, they can get God to worship them. That's really what they're trying to do. They are saying, I worship God, but truly what they think is they are greater than God. These are the people who love what they can get from God more than they love, than God, more than they love God himself. I introduced this idea last week. I want to unpack it today. The absolute best example we have of this kind of behavior, it's in the story of the prodigal son. This is the best example in Scripture of this. So if you've never read this story, you should, because it is an eye-opener. And in that story, you've got these two brothers, right? The younger, who we know is the prodigal. That's the only side of that teaching that usually gets taught in the Christian church. Because he's the young guy that is basically living a life of like rampant and wild sin. And what he's doing is, is he's squandering his father's inheritance. That's what we find out. He, he, he doesn't necessarily care for his dad. He just knows that his dad is, is wealthy. And he wants his money so he can run away and live his own life. His love is based on what he can get from God. And in this case, he lives a wild life of immorality. And that's the guy that usually gets thrown under the bus in that story. And there's an issue there, but that's not the only point that story is making. You keep reading, you'll find that there's another person, the one we're talking about now. He's an older brother, a righteous brother. And most of us are going to immediately identify with one of these two. We're either going to be the young one or the old one, our initial heart assumptions anyways. And he does, it, does, he does everything right. He keeps every single rule on the outside. He never leaves his father's side. He is always obeying perfectly what his father wants him to do. But the kick with this guy, the, the problem, is that he's not doing this because he really loves his father. He's doing it for the same reason the younger brother is. He knows his father has a lot of stuff. He's got a great inheritance for him. And he's living a certain way to try to get something from him. He's using his righteousness, his obedience, as a form of self-righteousness. He's leveraging it to indebt his father to him, who in this story represents God. He's saying, worship me, you should do this for me because I'm great. That's what he's saying. When God says you should worship me because I'm great. Because remember, worship's a posture of the heart where we recognize God is greater than us and we live in light of that. This older brother issue is what we're talking about here. And the older brother, the marks of the older brother are pretty clear. 
it's a very unhealthy form of worship. The older brother believes that his righteousness is what makes him acceptable to God. And even worse, because of this, he looks at his life and he says, you owe me something, God, because of this, because I have kept all your laws, and because I'm great, and because I never make mistakes, and because I feed poor people, all the things we just said were great, and because I have self-control and respect, and I'm keeping in this step, I do all these things. I'm a great guy. I'm a decent guy. He says, in fact, I'm better off than most people, and that's why you should love me. That's why you should reward me. I'm looking around, and everybody's here, and, I, and I'm right here. That's what he says, and what he's really saying to God is, come worship me. I'm, I'm God, and you owe me. But God says something very different. In this issue, he says, listen to the older brother, even if you're better than most people, maybe you are, but even if you are better than most people, that is not enough for me. That's the point that he makes. If that's enough, we don't need Jesus. We should just pack this up and all go home. There's only one person worthy of receiving that kind of love. That's Jesus. This is why we call this the scandalous grace of the cross. It levels everything we bring to him. You cannot be bad enough for Jesus to love you, and you cannot be good enough for Jesus to love you. Jesus loves you because he loves you. And we will spend our lives learning how to deepen our, ourselves in that love. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. For the older brother, he, God says, look, my Holy Spirit's going to remind you of this truth until your heart believes it. I don't love you because of you. I love you because of my son. And that's a much better form of love. Because until we understand that, we're trusting in our own righteousness, not Jesus' righteousness. And consequently, what happens there is we're keeping in step with our own spirit, not God's. We are creating faith and following ourselves in it. And because of that, if we're worshiping ourselves, we'll never be a true worshiper. At least in the Christian faith, we won't. That's a different kind of worship. Because we're not really following Jesus. The person who worships themselves follows themselves. And so if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart of an elder brother complex, don't fight it. The same is true of what we talked about earlier. He's likely going to unravel this from the depth of your heart out, not from the other way. Don't fight it. Make this the day that you trust Jesus' righteousness. Be freed from that bondage. It's just a different form of bondage. Follow God's Spirit back to the truth of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit wants to lead you there. The third thing, and the last thing we'll talk about this morning, and evidence of being cross-examined by the Holy Spirit, is when you consistently try to keep in step with the will and ways of Jesus. And so this is like the, the end game. Let's jump right to verse, uh, the last verse in Galatians. The ultimate kind of end game that Paul is encouraging us to kind of get on is he's saying, listen, when you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, when Jesus begins to show you his love for you, when he begins to, uh, to deal with your sin at the core of who you are, and he encourages you, and gives you confidence in Christ, he says, when all this happens, something is going to change. You're going to start walking in my ways. You're going to start be caring and being concerned about the will of God and the ways of God. You're going to live according to the values of Christ and his priorities. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to point out three questions. These will be uh, before us for our response time. They're diagnostic questions that can help us to, to ask whether or not we are committed to keeping in step with the will and the ways of Jesus. At least on a, by committed, I mean on a faithful basis. We can't do this perfectly. I'm just saying the default of our heart is that this is what we want. And so consider this uh, some time for the rest of the morning to pop the hood of, of your heart and let the Holy Spirit work in it for a little bit. When it comes to following Jesus, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Living in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of your life Okay? And think of the decisions you make. Do you let God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, influence how you make life decisions? Influence doesn't mean God robotically checks boxes and tells you everything to do. What I mean by this is, when you think of your life and your direction and the past five years of your life, how many times have you consulted God for that? 
How many times have you had an opportunity before you and you weren't sure what to do and you just jumped on something? Or how many times have you been overwhelmed by what is going on and you, you didn't, you know, if you profess faith in Christ, you didn't go before God with that? Or have you trusted in your own judgment at times? Are you, are you actively seeking the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is, is, in your world, is Jesus a central part of how you make decisions? Or is he an afterthought or not a thought of all? And a good uh, thought at all, a good sign of this in your life is to think about your life calendar, or again, you know, just kind of in, in a cursory way, think of the last five years of your life. Are you making decisions based on what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing, based on what you just think you should and shouldn't be doing? Do you feel like the, the, in the, the game of life, the tail is wagging the dog? Or are you really seeking the guidance of God in the Spirit? Are you asking Him to bring clarity in places where maybe there, there is none at times? Because that's a way that you worship God. And the most compelling reason, I think, that we should approach God with what is going on in our life, I mean, obviously we know, the, we know the gospel benefits of that, is that God will be faithful to help us understand the future. Maybe that's not always in a very clear directive, but, or maybe sometimes we realize we have a freedom to make a choice. There are two or three things in front of us, and all of them are good. All of them will honor God. But the bottom line is we've invited God into that conversation. The reason why I think it's important to practice this discipline is because as Christians... God has given us the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And Jesus practiced this discipline. He regularly counseled with his Father in heaven. He is, he is God, and he is before God on a regular basis, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, going to the cross. They're, working, they're, do, they're all doing this with each other. God the Father, Jesus, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to be like them, and we should, then it would make sense that we do this, that we would, we would consult God on our, in our lives. Is he a part of our decision-making process? Or is he just not a part of it at all? Is, is he compartmentalized to a few hours a week? It's a good way to figure out whether or not the Holy Spirit is active in your life, the way you understand his importance. Is he influencing your life with decisions? Secondly, um, part of knowing Jesus is knowing the Holy Spirit. And so I want to ask you this. Do you make it a point to get to know the Holy Spirit? I joked last week and I said in, in most Western Christian theology, the Holy Spirit's either abused, like we, we expect him to do things the Bible says he will not do, or we just don't know enough about him at all, so we just act like he isn't there. He's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and that thing, right? And that's a problem. So do you, do you make it a point to understand the full nature of who God is? Because the Holy Spirit is part of the nature of God. Just like Jesus and God our Father, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person who we are called to have a relationship with. It is, he is Jesus' Holy Spirit. He's not an it or a thing or a cosmic power. He is a person. And so you have to ask yourself, do, do you understand what this means and the implications of it in your life? Is there no place at all for the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you been neglecting the Holy Spirit because you don't really know who he is? It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You don't understand how he works. Or uh, the other side of this is that we might formulate unrealistic expectations for the way we expect him to work. And then we start to doubt God when he doesn't. But the truth is we're expecting him to do things and to work in ways that we're not ever promised. Are we taking God on his terms, not necessarily the terms we want? No matter where you find yourself this morning, it's important to get acquainted to the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can do this a few ways. You can obviously read scripture about who he is. We're doing that today in these past couple of weeks. You can talk to other people. This is why we say pursuing Jesus' truth in community for the sake of the mission. You can ask other people that you know love Jesus how the Holy Spirit works in their lives. Because I promise you, he's working in somebody's life. You can get some, ex some healthy experiential understandings of how he works. And you can ask God to reveal to you the way he is working in your life. To make sure that he is the source and strength of your faith. 
Because much like building God's kingdom, we said you can't build the kingdom without the king. When it comes to our ultimate lifestyle of worship, you can't become like Christ without the spirit of Christ. You can't. You need him. He's part of the equation. And the beauty of that is it means we don't have to figure out how to do this on our own. We do it with him and each other. There is help in this lifelong venture we call faith. So do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you have a desire to know him? Lastly, I would say this. Um, when, you, when you think about these questions, is he, is he influencing your life? Do you understand the way he's going to influence your life? I would give you kind of a, a very proactive statement here. Lastly, do you, re, do you surrender to the Holy Spirit when he does lead you? And, and I'm using that word when for a reason. Because you have to know if you, if you really have the desire to know Christ through his spirit, to be led by him, this is something that honors God. And this is something that God wants for our lives. So what he's going to do is start directing your steps. He's going to do just that. It's, it's one of those things where if you pray for it, you're likely going to see it happen. I'm not saying you're going to get every, you know, the next 30 years of your life figured out, but you're going to become aware to the workings of God through his spirit in your life. And this is where our devotion to Jesus will really be tested. Because it's very likely that, that when we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, uh, two things happen. When we keep in step, you, you will find that kind of unrivaled joy we talked about. When you're living as Jesus does, you're connected to him in a way that, that people that are not living like Jesus can be connected to him. It's one of his promises. So you have this great hope. But I would also say that you, you, you might be challenged in some ways you did not ever think were perceivable in your life. Because now you're saying to keep in step with Jesus' spirit means I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to get back to that thing we said earlier. I'm going to say Jesus is greater than me. And he is my Lord. And he doesn't abuse me with that. He doesn't wield that over me. But he says, I, I want to be your Lord and Savior. Follow me. And when that happens, you start loving him like that. And when you start loving him like that, obedience starts to follow. And that's when God begins to change us at the core of who we are. Because we're trying to live according to his will and his ways. And so what I'm saying here is that if you truly desire to have a relationship with God, Jesus, and his son, then they're going to give you that. They're going to grant you that. They're going to invite you into that paradigm in ways you might not have ever experienced before. And the more sensitive you become to these things, the more sensitive you will become to the way God works in your life through his spirit. And he, he, you know, we use this word in the Christian world, it's like promptings. He prompts the heart. He, he leads the heart. He directs the heart. There are ways that he does this. Sometimes they're very subtle. Some of us have you know, quiet moments, if you will, where we just know something needs to happen. We have a, a gnawing tug in our hearts. I'll, I'll find that a lot like... I might see somebody with a need and I want to like walk away, but it's like just eating at me and I know something has to happen. That's the way God can do it. He can be subtle and gentle. He can, he can make us aware of needs in life. He can direct us in the way that we serve other people. He can do this subtly. Sometimes though, his promptings can be a little more radical. Like when, when you know concretely that the Holy Spirit is proving something in your life, he's saying, listen, you are out of step with Jesus here. Like what you're about to do is no good. Like, you're going to hurt somebody, or you're going to hurt yourself, or I'm telling you, you're about to get out of step with my, with, with my father. You're about to get out of step with Jesus. And that's where we have to make some radical decisions. Or he might call us to serve him more faithfully in, in the church and in our world. You know, pet peeve little things we do, side project mission things we do might become deep-seated burdens of the heart. We have, this is just off the cuff, we have a friend visiting us this week who started going to Kenya to help kids the whole family started going on mission trips to Kenya. This was like four years ago. And they're coming to visit us this week because in two weeks they're moving to Kenya. Like this is the last time we're going to see them in a very long time. It was a subtle thing that God put on their heart that radically changed them. They're leaving their life here to go live permanently in Kenya. And I've been to Kenya. It's actually, it's a great place, but it is very different from Western North American living. It's a night and day. 
They're making great sacrifices to go over there. They're faithfully living in ways they never thought they would because God is working in them. There's receptivity there. He, he leads your heart to do things. Or he causes you to be generous and, and sacrificial in ways you never expected to be. No matter how the Spirit leads, big or small, so long as it lines up with Jesus' truth in Scripture. Super important caveat. We should want to follow him. When we know what he's leading us to do is going to honor God, we should follow him. If we sense that stuff's happening that doesn't honor God, we should step away from that. Because to genuinely worship Jesus means we've got to be humble, we've got to be teachable, we've got to be obedient, and we've got to be committed to Christ. And so simply put, the question you can ask yourself as we wrap up is when the Spirit leads, will I follow? I mean, this is probably where the rubber meets the road in our lives. When He leads, am I going to follow? Now, over the years, I've talked to a lot of you, and I have visited most all of your community groups, and I, I feel like I have a pretty good pulse on where we are at. And I don't think by any means we're a perfect church, but I do think we can see places in our history where the fruit of the Spirit has, has been evident and real. Sometimes it's been in great and grand ways. Sometimes it's been in very small, but by small I don't mean insignificant. People come here and they feel welcomed. They feel that people are genuine. They feel that there is healthy relationship here. People have sensed grace, maybe here and, and other places where they have not. We have seen people find Jesus. We have seen people get baptized for Jesus two weeks ago, right? We've had, we've had a great amount of people taking next steps with Christ. Some have met the Holy Spirit in worship. He moves you in this place. Some have, have met the Holy Spirit in some of you. You've moved a person's life because you've been faithful to be Jesus to them. These are all marks of the fruit of the Spirit. And again, not perfect, room to grow, but evidence is that God is real and alive. And that is a good thing. And it's why I believe God still has a future for us. So as we think about the future, as we get ready to celebrate next week, Think about the reality that God has stuff he still wants to do through us as a church and us as individuals. So this morning as we close, let's thank God for that in our hearts. Let's pray for that, that he increases our favor in our city and with the people that he has put in our lives to care for him in Jesus' name. Let's pray that the truths we are learning to love, we have a burden to share them with other people. And as you pray for that, I guess keeping consistent with everything I've said this morning, remember that it's very likely as you, when you sense a particular need or issue, a burden, and you start praying to God to meet that need, it's very likely that the way he might meet that need is you. So don't think that you're, you're subcontracting this out. Be willing to be a part of the solution, because it could very well be that you're burdened for that reason, because God is going to set you apart to serve and to care. So wherever it is, if it lines up with Jesus' truth, follow him where he leads. And as we close this morning, I want you to ask yourself, think about the Holy Spirit. What's he saying to you? What is he doing in your life? What do you intend to do about it? And use these questions we have during response as a guiding kind of light to find the truth of Jesus. Take a next step with him today, whatever he leads you to do. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you and the time that we have um, essentially talking about the power of your spirit that is working in and amongst us right now. And so I pray, Lord, as we have a couple of moments to, to just think and to pray about how to connect and to grow in you, that you would just use this time, God, to dial us in to what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and God, just lead us to the goodness of your Son right now. May we grow in him and take a next step with him, whatever it may be this morning. We thank you for that opportunity to do so and for the promise that you are in our lives to guide and direct it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.